You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you brought us together this morning. I pray that you will help us as we look into your word today. I pray that you'll help us as we seek to hear the Apostle Paul um, give us some sense of what it means to be followers of you, Jesus, and what it means to live in the life of your church. So bless the teacher and those who are here to listen. Um, open our hearts and our minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I started this series last week down in, this will be a, f- a five-week total series. I started it last week down in the basement, and I don't, I'm in the basement, um, in the assembly hall, and uh, I guess it's kind of the basement. Um, and uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to just give you a quick brief overview of what I talked about last week, and then we're going to dive in. And just so you know, today I want to spend our time together kind of all over the book, uh, wrestling a little bit with what, how Paul understands the character of spiritual leadership. So that's, I, want, I want to talk about that today from 2 Corinthians. Um, before we do that, let me, let me uh, open up the first chapter to you here and um, just give you a sense of what the major themes of this book, of this book is. So here you have the first verse in, uh, first verses in verse, beginning in verse 3. Paul, as you know, has already written a letter to the Corinthians. It's quite likely that Paul has written several letters to the Corinthians. He mentions one in 1 Corinthians that he had written earlier. Um, this is one of those fascinating questions, really, about um, modern Christianity. My wife even raised this question to me the other day. She said, what happens if we find 3 Corinthians? You know, and it, which doesn't seem really beyond the pale. I, I don't think that's going to happen, but it would be a fascinating, um, a fascinating challenge for modern Christianity, given the fact that we are fractured when it comes to Rome and then the East and Protestants. It would be fascinating. If, if you want my opinion, I wouldn't go to the guillotine over this, but if you want my opinion, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that some of these early letters of Paul that he talks about are actually buried within the letters that we have here. Um, and I, I won't go into all the details of this, but there's, there's a work when I was in my own sort of seminary days written by a scholar named David Trobish. And Trobish makes an argument that Paul is actually the editor of his own material. In other words, at the end of Paul's apostolic ministry, just thinking, yeah, he had a lot of time to do this in prison, that Paul was the one who actually took his letters and shaped them in a certain way um, and there's a kind of stability to the Pauline letters, and they're not given to us chronologically. You know, I think most people, most scholars, I hate to use whoever, um, think that First um, Thessalonians was probably Paul's first letter that he wrote early in his apostolic ministry, and we find First Thessalonians down the way in, in the Pauline collection. So it's not chronology, I think, that's influencing the order of Paul's letters. It's, it's I think, more theologically driven, um, and that's why, again, I'm, I'm pretty convinced of this. I don't, I don't impose it on you, but I'm, I'm convinced of this. I think Romans' signal position in the Pauline collection as the first book actually serves as an interpretive entry point for the whole of the Pauline collection. In other words, I, think, I think the book of Romans is helping you get a lens for how you're to read the whole of Paul's epistolary collection. Um, in similar ways, by the way, that I think Hosea begins the Minor Prophets. Hosea is not the oldest prophet of the Minor Prophets, but he begins the collection of the Twelve 
and provides for us an interpretive entry point to the whole of the Minor Prophets. So I, I think that's the case. And I also, if, if Paul is the shaper of his own letters, again, this is very speculative, all right? But it's quite possible, if not probable, that Paul himself had a collection of his letters and he shaped them in the way in which he wanted them to be shaped. Second Corinthians is a notoriously challenging book because it doesn't come to us in a way that feels unified. There are some breaks in the rhythm of Paul's apostolic address, particularly as you move into chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, but other places as well. And it's quite possible that maybe that's 3 Corinthians um, or 4 Corinthians, that actually Paul himself shaped the letters in this way. I offer it to you as a, as a speculative um, possibility, but I think it's the case, actually. Um, so with all that said, here we have Paul's uh, second letter to the Corinthians. You know that he had already been with them at one point in time, Acts chapter 18. Um, it's a messy scene there in Corinth, there on the, on the peninsula of, of ancient Greece, uh, right on the waterway there that really served as a gateway to enterprise and trade in the eastern world. Um, so Corinth was a very important city within the ancient and eastern milieu, or I should say the Greco-Roman milieu. Um, and here Paul's writing to this, this letter, the first letter to them, and they're a mess. I mean like a bona fide mess. Um, and the church is messy, and it always has been, and it always will be. If we think we can transcend that and to escape into some kind of platonic other when it comes to churchly existence, like, well... You know, just hang out with my children for a little bit, and you'll know that's not ever going to be the case. Um, it's a joke. Uh, but so, the, the, the church is, well, what's going on in Corinth? I mean, you have significant sexual immorality. You have um, brothers that are taking one another to court and making a kind of public spectacle of the church. Um, you have people that are wrestling with whether or not they should be eating food that's been offered to idols. And this is a real live pastoral question, and Paul's having to lean into this. And apparently when Paul wrote his first letter it, to them, it caused them pain. It hurt them. It brought a kind of fissure between the parent-child relationship, Paul being their apostolic father. And so this second letter of Corinthians is one that's filled with, the, with pathos and, and, and apostolic vulnerability. The kind of vulnerability that we sort of step back, especially in our modern moment where I think we tend... Not, I'm not saying you all, but I think in the cultural moment we tend to kind of appreciate bravado and, and masculinity and leadership and that, you know, the sort of chest-beating thing. And, and the Apostle Paul demonstrates a kind of spiritual leadership here that's really absent that. It's, it's, a, it's a different kind of thing. And so Paul is making himself very vulnerable here. And here you have in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, him beginning by expressing to them the comfort that God has brought to them in their own suffering, and how he has shared with them in that comfort as he has shared with them in their suffering. Um, Paul understands, and you know one of Paul's favorite metaphors in Corinthians is to talk about the church as a body. And this, this is one of Paul's favorite metaphors. And the body, as we all know, is intricately related to itself. We, we can't... Um, my, my left hand doesn't get the opportunity to operate in some sort of absconded existence from my left toe. If my left toe's hurting, my whole body's aware of it. Um, and that's the kind of di dynamic interaction that Paul understands about the life of the church as it relates to Christ our head. Christ is the head, we are, we are the body. So he begins with this, this notion of, of comfort. And I mentioned this last week, I'll say it to you again today, and then we'll, we'll press into our today's lesson. 
But here is what I think might be the thesis of 2 Corinthians, if one can reduce a, a book like this to a thesis. But here it is. Paul came to see that the fundamental issue of the Christian message was embodied not only in proclamation, but also tellingly in the lifestyle of its messengers. So the message of the gospel was something to be proclaimed, and for Paul it was also something to be lived. All right, so this is where Paul, I think, begins to sort of press the Corinthian believers to think through the dynamics of their own existence in the life of Christ as that works itself out in their community. And they had plenty of opportunity to work through the dynamics of what it means to rub lives with one another. That creates friction, but the gospel of Jesus Christ has something to say to us about what it means to relate to one another in the way that Jesus related to us. I think that's the, lo that's the gospel logic of, of the Apostle Paul. When you think of things on the vertical plane, God moves toward us in kindness and forgiveness. And then that propels us into relationships with others that are driven by kindness and, and forgiveness as well. Okay? Now, with all that said, that really, that's not today's lesson. Today, um, brace yourself, I have nine things I want to say, and I'm going to say them fast, so don't worry. Nine things. Uh, le lessons from 2 Corinthians on Paul's uh, spiritual leadership, okay? And we're going to flip through the book here. I'm conscious of the time. So here, here are, are nine lessons of leadership that we get from the Apostle Paul, all right? Number one, here's Paul and his apostolic authority, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul's spiritual leadership was a leadership that was always ready to forgive. That's number one. Paul had been hurt. Um, Paul had given himself to this community. And even in the writing of a letter, you will feel Paul saying things like, I was going to come to you again when I was in Macedonia, which is like saying, when I was in Atlanta, I was going to come down to see you. A little bit more challenging. Um, but he says, I avoided seeing you because I didn't want to bring you any more pain. That's an incredible thing he's saying. Um, something's happened to the two of us, and you feel like I've wounded you, and I actually believe that you've wounded me in this relationship. And Paul expresses in the strength of his own apostolic ministry a readiness and a quickness to forgive. Look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And listen to this next verse. I'll <laughs> like a C.S. Lewis screw tape lettery kind of thing. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. I should have brought Lewis's screw tape letters with me today to read this to you, but I, I didn't do it. But it's, it's, it's letter number two or three. Right out of the gate of Uncle Screwtape writing to, to his nephew Wormwood, who's, being, who's an apprentice in the life of being a demon, and what it means to try to trip up Christians in their faith to move them toward unbelief. Um, and so Screwtape, he's been around for a while, and he's, he's been around the block, and he's helping this young, his young protege know how to get into the life of this neophyte Christian. He's just come to the faith. And do you, do you know what he says first and foremost? He says, make sure that he gets into church fast and that he sees that the Christians around him 
are people that really kind of get under his skin. That's what he tells them. Get them in there. Let them see that these people are, they're, 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 there's a lot of hypocrisy, and they can get angry toward one another, and there's local church politics, and there's all these kind of dynamics that if you can expose them to that, and let them see the real, you know, get, get behind the curtain at Oz, and see how things really are in the machinations of a, of a local church, Screwtape says, if you can get them to see that, you're halfway to getting them out the door, right? Um, that's kind of what Paul's saying here. Satan's not stupid. He recognizes what it is to live as fallen individuals, as those who are burdened and marked by our sinful status till the day we die, in the place where that sinfulness makes itself more, most prevalently known is in the way in which we relate to one another in our homes and in the body of Christ. It's, it's, it's you know, I, I jokingly tell my students at Beeson's, you know, one of the great blessings of Christian community is community. And one of the great curses of Christian community is community. <laughs> um, it's the, the lived dynamic of being in people's lives. And that's, that's what's going on here in Corinth. And, and Paul is saying, we've got to be, I'm ready to forgive, and you need to be ready to forgive. For what purpose? For the sake of our public witness to the gospel. For the sake of the gospel's witness, because Satan is not stupid and we know his designs. If he can cause internal friction in the local body of Christ, if he can do that, then he can certainly distract us from our mission. Because we're called to be for the sake of mission. And that's not mission here understood not just as going to the four corners of the earth. Mission being a recognition that the gospel has a place in the public square of earthly and communal existence. And the church's lived life together is a lived life of a prophetic existence and a prophetic proclamation to the world. In in a kind of ideal way, what the church models is another way of being another political entity, what it means to move toward one another, what it means to grieve together, what it means to romance in the life of the church, what it means to move toward death in the life of the church. All of this is an an alternative mode of being in a culture that seems to think about these things in ways that are often so different from what we believe the Bible and the Christian tradition teaches us. So Paul, right out of the gate, says, my spiritual leadership is marked by a willingness and a readiness to forgive. Why? Because we know that Satan is smart and we know that if internal fractures come into the life of the church that it impedes our public witness. Number two, Paul's spiritual leadership is quick to share his gratitude for uplifting news. His gratitude for uplifting news. Um, Look at the same chapter here, verses 13 to 14. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them, and then I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him him everywhere. And then if you look at chapter 7, verse 6, Paul says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us, by the coming of Titus. Um, there are probably more points that are like the one I'm about to talk about here, but Paul, in his apostolic ministry, demonstrates a kind of vulnerable humanity. 
In other words, Paul's not slow to admit that he needs the encouragement and support of others. And that that's not in any way an attenuation or a downplaying of either his authority or, for lack of a better term, his masculinity. He needs other people. He needs equality friendships. He needs to know that Titus is going to come and bring him a comforting word. Now you read in the book of Philemon, Paul getting over, expressing kind of overwhelming joy that Epaphras came to him and, and, uh, and, and then Onesimus came to him and ministered to him while he was in prison. Because apostolic ministry like the Apostle Paul's was a very lonely thing. Moving on from church to church to establish the church of Jesus Christ, I mean, leadership like this is, is, a, is a lonely place to be. And Paul is not slow to say, Corinthians, I need you. And Titus, I need you. And Timothy, it was so good to hear that you're doing well. And that the good news that came to him, and really a kind of apostolic ministry that was marked by so many difficulties. I mean, Paul was quick to say, I need good news. You know, there's something, I think, rather inviting about that. Um, again, thinking about the ways in which this particular view of apostolic or spiritual leadership comes into play with how we might think of it within our own modern moment. I mean, so, so many of us are kind of taught not to express any need of affirmation or someone other. You know, um, I'm, I'm a kind of island into myself. I can, I'll turn inwardly, inward, you know, for my, for my own self-sustenance and encouragement. And, and here you have the Apostle Paul saying, I, I need the help and the benefit and the encouragement of others in, in the ministry I'm called to. Number three. Uh, yep, we're okay. Number three. Courageous and hopeful in trying circumstances. So Paul's ready to forgive. He's grateful for uplifting news. And then he's courageous and he's hopeful in trying circumstances. L listen to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you want a kind of takeaway chapter of this whole epistle, I would say chapter 4 is the place to go. This is what Paul says. Listen to this in first chapter, verse 7. But we have this treasure. What's the treasure? The treasure of the gospel. In jars of clay. <laughs> Great turn of phrase. I mean, Paul's talking about his own apostolic identity. He's talking about his own person. I'm, I'm just a, a jar of clay. I'm, I'm fragile. But the treasure of the gospel has been given in this particular medium, a, a jar of clay. Why? So that you're not all that impressed with the pot. I mean, the pot's not impressive at all. You know, clay jars, they're meant to be expendable. Well, there one broke on the floor. Well, let's just go get another. Paul says, we're just jars of clay, but the jar of clay is meant to show what? The surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. Paul loves to brag. But Paul is always going to brag about the power of God. Paul is going to be quick to show and demonstrate his own personal weakness. Matter of fact, Paul tells us, right, that I mean, this is one of these things, you think it's so vulnerable to say it, but, but Paul, you know, who writes these mighty letters. Well, apparently, when you met the Apostle Paul, he wasn't all that impressive. People are like, you're the guy who wrote those letters? I mean, have you ever had that experience? I had it happen once. I won't tell you who it was. But uh, this was kind of a pre-internet day, at least for me, or I wasn't surfing the internet, so I didn't have any visual 
of a seminary pro professor that I was going to take back in my seminary days. I had read almost everything the man had written, had an enormous regard for him. Uh, and he wrote with a kind of elegance and, and power in his turn of phrase and the substance of his thought. And I thought, oh, I can't, I'm, I get to take a class with, with this person. And I, I'll never forget, I'm sitting in the class and the, the, about to start and here he comes rolling in the door. I mean, he's, you know, five foot three and wearing pastel, a pastel short sleeve plaid shirt and didn't have all the buttons buttoned. And um, I mean, it looked like he just rolled out of bed. And, and uh, I thought, you cannot be the man that I read about. And then, of course, the class started and he was the man, right? Um, this, this is the Apostle Paul. I mean, people met him and they're like, you know, you're not, you're not really all that impressive. And Paul's response to that would be, exactly. I mean, that's, that's the point. I'm not meant to be impressive. In fact, Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I, I encourage my students at Beeson always to think about 1 Corinthians 2 when it comes to their preaching. Because Paul says, I intentionally work hard not to overwhelm you with rhetoric, but to overwhelm you with the truth of the Word of God itself in the Gospel. So I, I, I encourage my students, that when you're preparing sermons, we all, and it's a challenge for all of us, but we need to think through this question. Do my words serve the Word, or, do the, or does the Word serve my words? That's the kind of question that I think you, we have to wrestle with, those who are in the preaching ministry. And Paul says, I want my words to serve the word because it's not about me. I'm a jar of clay. You can drop me on the ground and I'll break and I'm gone. The power is found in the surpassing riches of the gospel itself as proclaimed in Jesus Christ. So he, he's, um, he, that was verse 7. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And here's a verse that's, a, I think it's probably one of the heaviest lines in all of Paul's writings. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you can read this for homework, but back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that when he was in Asia and when he was in prison there, he despaired to the point of death. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying that? He wrote that in an inspired letter of the Bible. When I was in prison, I despaired to the point of death. Paul is a Christian realist. He's not a Christian idealist that thinks that he can escape embodied existence. Do you hear how honest he is here? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. This, this is a great dialectical tension here. Um, we're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul lived into this kind of Christian realism that recognized that earthly human existence does not get to escape the trouble that comes to all humanity. But the trouble that comes to all humanity is not a final word 
about our ultimate existence. We can be crushed. I mean, we can be perplexed. We can, we can be afflicted, but not to the point of being crushed to nothingness. If the, if the jar of clay gets dropped, that's not the end of the jar. We're not driven to ultimate despair. Um, in thinking a little bit about despair, I don't know, don't know why, but in this season of, of, of Advent, and, and, uh, which is very Lenten in some ways, I guess, um, have any of you watched the movie uh, First Reformed? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? No? Don't. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a kind of art film. Uh, Ethan Hawke plays a, a minister um, in classic sort of New, New, New England, uh, New York, sorry, outside New England. He's, he's basically a minister in a, in a, uh, in a tourist destination church, a, 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 um, a revolution-era period church that has like four people that come on Sunday. And then the large megachurch in town, which is pastored by Cedric the Entertainer. He's not, not Cedric the Entertainer in the movie, but he, he's the pastor. Um, they basically support and fund this national landmark in their city, but they're the megachurch. I mean, huge church. Youth choir, the band, the rock and roll. I mean, all of it's there. Um, and here's Ethan Hawke, who's on the far side of his own discouragement and despair. Um, his, his wife had left him. His son had been killed in Iraq. Um, and he is struggling in his own moment in despair. And throughout this movie, um, he uses Soren Kierkegaardian language. He talks about the sickness unto death. That's a, that's a Kierkegaard title of a book. And what's the sickness unto death? The sickness unto death is despair. Um, an absolute loss of any hope. Um, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why we need the Bible and why we need one another. Because there are those in our community who move toward genuine despair. And they don't know the truth of a hope beyond that. And they need the Bible to remind them and love them in that. And they need us to remind them and to love them in those particular moments. We are perplexed, but not, not driven to despair. Oh, I'm going to skip a few. I'm just going to do one more, and then I'll see if you have any questions. Um, we'll finish this up next week. Here's, here's, here's the next one. True ambition is pleasing to God. Chapter 5, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Why? Well, because we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us is going to have a day before the Lord. And what does Paul say? Paul says that the ambition of his existence is to please the Lord. He's talking here again about what a kind of spiritual leadership looks like, or what leadership looks like in the life of the gospel. Our existence is an existence that's lived to please the Lord. This, this takes some thinking through, I think, because we can look at the Apostle Paul and say, well, of course, I mean, you, you did God for your business. You're basically a prophet. And your whole life is a life of ministry. That's what you do. And if there's, if there's an enduring legacy of the Reformation that's not sung out enough and talked about enough, it's the, it's the, the legacy of the Reformation period um, recapturing a theology of vocation for lay people. 
In other words, there was a certain understanding that I think is still very present in the life of Christ church that the clergy, they, they do God for their work and then we do kind of secular stuff for our work. So the, you live in this sacred secular divide. And the Reformation was a big fat no to that. Um, th there isn't this radical secular sacred divide. In fact, all Christians are called to a vocation in public life, and that vocation has added, as its aim pleasing God. Like Eric Little, you know, running on the beach of St. Andrews in the opening scene of The Chariots of Fire. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And this is a kind of understanding of what it means to have all of our life and our work and our family and our recreation and everything that makes us who we are have as its ultimate aim and end the glory and the pleasure of God. This keeps us, by the way, from a schizophrenic existence. I think we str I struggle with this. I don't know if you do. I struggle with a kind of human schizophrenia when it comes to understanding who, what is this self? Who am I? And here we have Paul and really the whole Christian tradition that loudly wants us to remember and recall what? That all of our lives have as a singular end and goal, a kind of meaning and purpose to them, that they live for the glory of God and for the pleasure of God no matter what God has called you to do. Mother, father, dentist, lawyer, teacher, educator, whatever it is. God has called us into those vocations for a particular end, namely his glory, his renown, and our pleasure. Um, thought about this again in light of our current moment of reading a little bit on, on Frederick Nietzsche, who in so many ways was the father of, of, the, of the modern moment, the, the, the 20th century moment. Um, and what happened? Well, human meaning and purpose gets cut out. Why? because of the death of God. No God, no meaning, no purpose. And what you have in the 20th century are these sort of mad efforts to try to provide meaning and purpose in the world with God being dead. But Julian Barnes, in one of his books, I think it was a book entitled The Sense of an Ending, Julian Barnes says, I don't believe in God anymore, but I really miss him. Because there's this recognition that that's what gives meaning and purpose to human existence. And if you remove that reality, then all of a sudden we're kind of left with no purpose and direction, no meaning. Um, I, I think we're feeling this in our moment as we have over the past 100 years. And the Apostle Paul says, my whole existence is about pleasing him. All of it is. So we'll come back to this again next week. And we have a few minutes. Anybody want to ask a question before we go? Anybody want to fire something out? Um, I have a question. Uh, the earlier you mentioned that Paul may have been the editor of his own letters. Yeah. Um, so if we believe that Luke authored the book of Acts, um, clearly he took an interest in Paul towards the end of Paul's life and make sure that this was done. Is it possible that somebody like Luke may have assisted Paul? In, I mean, is there any evidence of that? We don't have any evidence of it. It's one of the things about the, and I say this with the Old Testament as well, um, the, the social imagination that's necessary to come to some conclusion about how the Bible came to be in its literary form. 
I'm not talking about inspired authors like Isaiah and David and Matthew and Luke. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying how we have this thing in textual form right now. Um, the scribes were kind of masters at hiding their tracks. And, it's, and, we, and so we, I mean, there, there are all kinds of social imaginations that we might come up with that could give us some sense of why this occurs. And I think some are better than others. Um, I have a sense of this for the Old Testament really more than the New. Um, but it's certainly not beyond the pale. I mean, we certainly see, I think, for example, in Second Peter, that Peter's involving some sort of amnuensis, some, some scribe who's there probably on his deathbed who's basically taking down Peter's last will and testament, something of that nature. So, so the fact that biblical authors will use scribal editors outside of themselves and even oversee their scribal activity, that is certainly not beyond the pale. It's, it's very conceivable, if not probable. But evidence for it is a whole other question. No, we don't have any evidence for it. I like what John says, that Jesus did a lot more than this, but this is enough to... <laughs> yes, exactly. And by the way, I, that, that, that verse right there links tightly into your question. Because I'm pretty convinced that, that verse that's added there at the end of John is a kind of um, editorial insertion at the end of John that's not just meant for John, but for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a fourfold witness. And here you have you know, a sort of editorial comment at the end saying, Jesus did a lot of other things, but these four here are sufficient. That, that's enough. All right, we've got to go. Blessings to you all. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.